Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, (laughs) Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and the Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Notre Dame trounced Georgia Tech 55-0 on Senior Day and will head to Stanford on Saturday to attempt to finish the regular season with just one loss and an outside chance at making the college football playoff. Uh, any reason is a good excuse, in my opinion, to catch up with former Notre Dame left tackle Mike McGlinchey. So since I'm flying out to San Francisco on Friday, it only made sense to catch up with a current San Francisco 49er. We recorded this interview with Mike last Friday to get ahead of the short Thanksgiving week we're in now. So there won't be any discussion of what happened in the Georgia Tech game specifically. Um, But I think it's an interesting conversation that you guys would like to hear. We also had a bit of a connection issue early. So there are a few spots where Mike's answer goes in and out, which we ended up fixing. Um, But we wanted to keep some of that in because we thought it was a good discussion. So apologies for that. Um, I hope you enjoy this interview. We are thrilled to welcome former Notre Dame left tackle and current San Francisco 49er Mike McClinchy onto the podcast. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Mike, I'm curious, what has it been like watching this Notre Dame football season from afar? It's been fun, as, as, as it always has been. Um, it's, I'm, no, I'm known in across my locker room that I'm the most annoying college fan of all time. Every Saturday <laughs> showing up in my blue, green, and gold. and um, Always, always repping the Irish hard and 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 rooting rooting hard from afar, um, and it's it's been I think the coolest thing to see is just the way that they've, you know, they've kept you know the old chopping wood. They they they've just kept at it, and no matter what's happened, no matter what close games happen, and um, you know the early parts of the season, whether it's you know, and as an alum, I you know, I feel for the guys. You hear all the noise about you know the crappy play of, of, of what's going on across the team, where the complaints are going. And, um, you know, you, you just root for these guys and they've just, they've blocked out the noise. They've said to, you know, everybody else, we're not going to focus on what you have to say about what we are and who you think we are. Um, and we're just going to keep winning games. And, you know, 11 weeks into the season, we're, they're sitting at nine and one and a pretty favorable next two weeks. And, have an outside chance at a third 
at a four playoff spot. And, and that's just who Brian Kelly and the, and the coaching staff there has built this program to be. And I think there's a there that, and that's, what's been cool. I, I saw something on the internet um, the recently uh, that made the distinction between a team and a program. And um, I think Notre Dame has, has eclipsed that, that, that difference. I think from, that they are, they are now a perennial program that is to be reckoned with across America. And no matter who or what is on the team every year, it's going to be, put the best foot forward to be able to win football games. And I think it's what the fourth or fifth straight 10 win season for BK. And um, that just speaks for itself. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun watching from afar. It's been a lot of fun um, rooting for these guys. I don't have a hand in the game anymore. I don't know. I think I might know like two or three of the fifth year seniors that are still there. So shows how old I'm getting. Um, but it's still uh, it's still a lot of fun. Still talk to Coach Kelly and, and all those guys back there. And it's been fun to wait, see the way that they've cleaned up and persevered, um, you know, the whole way through the year. You know, Mike, somebody asked me in my chat the other day um, if you could if you could do a book on any season that you've covered, and I've been covering Notre Dame since 1997. So um, what, what year would you pick? And I picked 2017 uh, because I just. When it all started. It's when it all started. Yeah. And, and so for what I want to ask you in that context is, you know, you were part of the 2016 team and then this incredible start in 2017 what about that season, if anything, did you feel not only was this kind of a turning point that this was going to be sustainable, that this was going to turn into 50 plus wins in five years? I think um, that winter, um, I think looking back on it in 15, we were just a team. We were an incredible group of talent of guys that we had recruited and developed and and done so well and I thought that was one of the best teams I played on at Notre Dame I thought talent wise I think 2015 um, was the team that we we underachieved I think we should have I think we should have been national champions I think we should we had a chance to be um, and unfortunately a couple injuries happened down late down the road that we weren't able to finish and, and all that stuff but um the year following was 16. And I think guys didn't really realize after all the success that we had had in 15, that, you know, there, there, you have to work to earn this. Like this isn't just, you know, we lost 12, 14, 12 to 14 guys to the league that year. And so we had to replace a whole, a whole team mm -hmm. and we weren't ready for that. And I think um, that's why 16 went the way it did. And then, it, and the decisions that were made in that in, in that 17 winner by Coach Kelly, by um, Jack Schwarbrick, by anybody who, you know, is in charge and the hires that were made and the recruiting adjustments that were made um, and all of those things, they made a commitment that that was never going to happen to Notre Dame again, especially under Coach Kelly's watch. And, um, and I think the players bought in and, and they saw the difference in coach Kelly. They saw the difference in the staff that he brought in. They saw the difference in the way that we were working out. They saw the the difference in the way that we were held accountable. And, um, and that 17 off season, that's when you knew, okay, 
you know, I don't know how this season's going to go. I don't know what the, I don't, you don't know the players we got, but I know who we are. Um, I didn't know what we were. And then we started, you know, took a little road bump against Georgia, but you know, that what, that's a, that was a Georgia team that went on to the final four that year. Um, and we, you know, if our left tackle was a little bit better, maybe we have a chance to oh. drive down, drive down the field and make a kick a field goal to tie it up. Um, but that, that, that run we went on for eight or nine games after that, um, you know, that was a special time. And that was kind of when we started to feel that we were legit and that what, that what we were building was something that was going to be. And I think I said it at some point, at point in that season, somebody asked me after the uh, Miami game, because that, yeah, that was a little bit of a, a halting, abrupt stop to what we were doing. Um, they said, you know, what do you play for now that your national championship hopes are gone? And I think I responded with, um, you know, whether it's helping Notre Dame win national championship now or in the future, like that's always our goal is to build this place to be what it is. And um, looking back, heard there and they've kind of, they kind of made me right. And um, they've been competing for one ever since. One follow-up on that. I, I talked to um, Craig Nelson, Quentin's dad, a few years How's ago. How's Craig about, doing? Is he good? He's awesome. He's yeah. He's not on social media much anymore. Uh, but <laughs> he, he seems to be enjoying life. Um, That's good. He's he's one of my favorite parents just because he was. He's one of everybody's favorite parents. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, I don't have to explain. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking, and I mean, this was all on the record. He told me about Quentin's kind of exit interview after the 16th season when he was deciding whether he wanted to come back. And Quentin and Craig both kind of told Brian some of the changes he needed to make. And Brian took them to heart. And I'm wondering, what was your exit interview like? You know, because he talked to everybody that <laughs> offseason. If, if he you did. Were um, you know what? Looking back, I think. It was probably, I mean, Q and I were pretty, pretty similarly minded on the way we viewed things about our program. So I'm sure a lot of it was a little bit of a very similar talking point, which is why I think Coach Kelly woke up the way he did, because there was probably 90 of the same you know, talking <laughs> points. Um, but it had to go with, you know, things have to change. Off season has to change. You know, it had gotten stale in that building. There was, you know, guys were the guys they had brought in. We had, had off the field stuff, guys not being eligible, guys not being, you know, living right and, and being good members of the Notre Dame community. Um, our, you know, our we felt as though our development of young guys had gotten stale as a college kid looking back. It's kind of or looking back as a, you know, almost 27 year old four year go into coach Kelly's office and tell him what we think as a 20 year old kid, Hey, this is what you need to do. What we all think, you know, could go better. And, um, I don't remember specifics. Uh, I would assume it was maybe a little bit more polished myself than it was with Qu Craig and Quentin. Um, <laughs> they might, they might let their emotions flare a little bit more in those types of situations, which is fun, you know, fun and why they are who they are and why you love them um, because they're honest and they probably went in and told coach Kelly exactly what we need, what he needed to hear, which um, 
you know, I felt as though I did the same. I think it was really, really cool. And one of the coolest things that I had ever seen before was um, the way that BK approached that offseason. And I think it takes it takes a lot of humility, a lot of commitment and a lot of check and pride at the door to have 95 one-on-one interviews with your team of your players, especially at college football, after 25 years of having one way of doing things. And um, I still think one of the most impressive, you know, leadership moments I've ever seen was that 17 offseason with Coach Kelly. Mike, I'm curious, you, you talked about being a little bit more disconnected from the program now, the, the farther away you get in terms of your career. Um, one connection you certainly have is Hunter Biven, and he is now yeah. the uh, director of player development for the Notre Dame football program. I'm curious, what have you seen from what he's been able to do and how proud are you of what he's been able to do uh, sticking on with the Irish staff? Um, I think I've, I, you know, I think it's the coolest thing ever. I think I, I am so unbelievably proud of Hunter um, and the job that he's done there and, and the man that he's made himself to be. Um, coming from knowing him as a 16 year old kid to what we are now 10 years later you know 11 years later whatever whenever we first met each other in recruiting to becoming my best friend and he is he is my best you know outside of my family is my best friend on earth and um he is uh he's truly you know a special human being and and he's allowed um notre dame to influence who he's become and what he's able to do. And, um, you know, I remember when we finished up, uh, Durham and I, Durham Hunter, Durham Smythe Hunter and I were, uh, all roommates for all five years at school. And, um, well, not all five. We didn't, we didn't technically live together, but we had our little, you know, back alleyways right. of doing things. Um, <laughs> so we, um, and, we were our fifth year Durham and I were getting ready to leave and, um, and go to start training for the, for the league. And, um, Hunter had stayed back and did an internship with the, uh, with the football office and, and did the development role. He thought that would be something he could, you know, learn from and do well in and, and on, on top of give him some time to figure out what his next step of life was going to be now that we're graduated. And so he, he does it for three or four, months or whatever the semester is maybe to maybe to may i think january to may he did it and then winds up taking like a consulting job in chicago um hated every second of it i think um and he was like dude i just can't i just can't deal with you know corporate stuff like i i I don't i i I don't that's not me it's not who i want to be i know that's like the right path to go on to make money and support your family and do all these things now that he's you know, he obviously had pictures of marrying his now wife, Megan at the time, but about a year later, the shakeup happens in the front office with, uh, Clunder moving on and, um, and Ron elevate Paulus elevating to that role. And, um, he calls me, he's like, what do you, should I go for it? And I'm like, heck yeah, you should go for it. Like, I think that would be the best thing for you. And I don't think there's anybody I know that could do a better job of, being the liaison to real real life and football and Notre Dame and everything than you, you are like Hunter Biven to me is the perfect example of what Notre Dame is all about. And, um, 
the human being that he is, the worker that he is, the transformation that that school gave him, the people in that place, you know, whether it's coaches, teachers, um, administration, whoever, um, he saw a path that was better than what he thought he could do for himself. And um, he had people that believed in him. And he went in there and knocked Coach Kelly's doors off in the interview and, um, and got the job. And I think he's done an unbelievable job there. The kids love him. The coaching staff loves him. Coach Kelly loves the role that he's in. Um, you know, funny enough, him and Adam Sargent, who Sarge was the guy that we were always avoiding the call from back in the day <laughs> when, he, when he was tracking us down for why we were doing poor in school or something like that. They're best buddies now and they work side and side together. So it's kind of funny how that transformation has gone. Um, but yeah, I, I, I look forward to uh, the, I, every time Notre Dame plays at Stanford now, because it means I get another uh, a free trip to see Hunter Biven. <laughs> you mentioned um, earlier that um, you, there's only a handful of guys left from the 2017 class. So there's only six guys that you could possibly have run into in the locker room. Right. I want to ask you about two of them. Okay. Two, two guys that were freshman defensive linemen, Heinish, Heinish and, and Myron, Myron, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What, what your impression is of those guys coming in the door and what they've turned out to be? Well, I, you know, I think it's, it's – you never really know when, when you got guys that are young and freshmen and, 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 you know, you see stuff and we talk about – we used to talk on, on, you know, on offensive line meetings when we would sit and watch film together of, you know, we, uh, you know, Oh man, he could, you're a scout team D lineman that are freshmen. Oh, he, he could be a player someday. You know what I mean? And both of those guys were that, um, they both, and they both contributed very relatively early, um, yeah. to the Notre Dame football team and, um, both now captains and the, and the rise that they've made, um, in those ranks and, very impressive. The two of them have, are, are, are awesome dudes. Um, haven't spoken to either one of them in, in, since I went back to school and, and trained a little bit in the spring. Um, but everything that our program stands for, guys that just came in, grinded, just made plays that they needed to make plays and were always, always there and guys that could be counted on. And, uh, and that's why they're in the positions that they're in today. And have an incredible success, you know, for and leading uh, another playoff caliber team. Mike, speaking of freshmen, Joe Alt has stepped up at left tackle for Notre Dame as a true freshman and kind of has a similar, I guess, profile as you did coming out of high school as a, as a, a tall guy, a, a good athlete who had played some tight end. I'm curious how, how you can – if you can quantify or qualify how difficult it is what he's doing playing left tackle at Notre Dame as a freshman. I, I, I don't know how he's doing it. I, I didn't, I didn't play. I didn't play until I was a third year guy. I, uh, well, I, I had a start or two under my belt after my second year, but, um, no, I, my true freshman year, I was not ready to do any of that. Um, I, uh, I hats off to that guy. You know, I, I don't know him. I I've never met him. Um, but what he's doing right now, he's, and he's just gotten better. You know, you see, you, we saw how, the line struggled at times early in the year and whether it was in protection or, or run game or whatever. And it was because they played with, you know, three or four left tackles until week five. And, and, and that's not something that's easy to do and um, easy to accomplish success with. And uh, Joe has, has proven that he's a guy that wants to get better. He loves, he 
clearly loves football by the way he plays and the way you can watch him on tape. Um, and the best thing about him is that he's just gotten better and better every week to prove that he's a steady force for them out there. And um, there's nothing better than, you know, trial by fire. <laughs> and he's certainly lived up to the task and, and it's been cool to cool to see. And, and it makes, you know, get you excited for the future of the program when, uh, you know, uh, Blake can get, can get back and, and they have two tackles that are true freshmen for the next couple of years. Mike, I wanted to um, shift a little bit to what you're doing, which is sitting, um, because there's a whole lot of that right now. I'll <laughs> tell you that. Yeah, I, my leg is. Uh, yeah, so I'm 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 doing a whole lot of nothing other than uh, trying to eat right and and be a pro in rehab. But I'm in the very. I'm one week out today officially from surgery. It was I had it last Friday on the 12th. Um, repaired my quad tendon. Um, which is right above, right where it connects to your knee. Um, so that's what, that's what ruptured. Um, I had been dealing with a, a little bit of partial tearing there for um, quite a while now. And I guess that's what they refer to uh, tendonitis as, is the partial tearing of the, of the tendons. Um, and it was manageable. It was, it was something that I just learned to deal with. And as I thought that was just, you know, a part of being an offensive lineman and being a tall guy and, um, you know, years of lifting extremely hard and heavy and to be able to play at this level. And um, that's what happens. But um, turns out it was a little bit more than that. <laughs> um, and when I went to anchor on a on a pass protection against Arizona two weeks ago, it kind of just gave out on me. And um, so had a full reconstruction. I'm in a full brace um, le leg. Well, not, I guess not a full reconstruction. I was like still 10% attached or something like that. Um, Sounds incredibly painful. It yeah. wasn't. Yeah. Well, it wasn't actually as long as I wasn't, you know, bending my knee, it wasn't too bad. Like I, like funny enough, I was able to go out and play golf the day before my surgery um, <laughs> because I, they told me that, you know, I live in California, so I take advantage. I can golf as much as I want. <laughs> All right. Um, and so, I was a little, I was the one thing I was like, God, you know, in my downtime, I'm not even going to have golf to deal with. Like I can't <laughs> even do that. And so I wanted to get one more round in before I went under the knife and, um, you know, but it, yeah, so I'm it, the first six weeks are pretty slow. I'm in this brace for the first couple of weeks, uh, four to six weeks of this brace that keeps my leg locked out and, um, going to a lot, a lot of TV watching, a lot of movie watching, a lot of football watching and um that's uh that's pretty much all i got going on right now well um what's the what's the timetable for you to be 100 percent? and also you know they picked up your option for your fifth year so are you technically a free agent after the season no i so my i am contractually under with the 49ers until through next season. One more year okay yeah so that won't affect that. But how about then when are you going to be 100%? So far? I'm about I'm about 6 I think it's like 6 to 8 months is what they said. Um wow. so yeah, it's a good it's a good little rehab and um you know, I've my girlfriend Brooks going to be a saint. She'll be canonized by the end of this thing <laughs> here um taking care of my here on the West Coast and all that, but uh no, it's uh, it'll be good. It'll be I, I plan on coming back and 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 being better and I've never had, you know, six to eight months to just get my body completely right. So 
I'm, I'm looking forward to that opportunity to get better and, and feel great and, and be in the best shape and be better than I've ever been when I come back. Um, anybody that knows me knows that I'll work as hard as I can to do so. Um, but, you know, I just patience hasn't always been my virtue. So I got to I got to work on that one. Mike, you've been paired with some pretty incredible left tackles in San Francisco with Joe <laughs> Stanley and Trent, yeah, and Trent yeah. Williams. I'm not sure that anyone could say they've played with two better two left Hall tackles in your in first the, four years. What have you been able to learn from those guys? So I've, I've learned a lot. Um, I've learned a lot of the way to handle yourself. And, and Joe and I played a lot more similarly than, and, than Trent and I did. We, we, we you know, um, but the savviness of Trent and the, his ability and his, he's unbelievably smart. And I, I, I don't like guys that, you know, categorize guys of like Trent as like, Oh, they're just, you know, he's, he's, it's just him. He, he's, he's got his genetics are just different. Well, yeah, that's probably true. No doubt. It probably is. But the way that that guy understands football the way that he's under understands situational football and when he can and can take can't take chances, when to use the best fundamentals, when to get somebody off of the rocker by showing them something different, um, and and just his uh, just his acumen of an athlete is just incredible to watch. And the, and the two of them, um, you know, Joe was a little bit more of a mentor because I was a rookie when I got when I was with him and and and. Um, so I leaned on him a lot. I leaned on him a lot more um, for how to get my feet, you know, set and in, 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 in managing what it means to be a great offensive tackle at the NFL level and, and, and how to live your life on top of it. Cause it's that, that's a lot different when, when you're thrust into a starting role as a rookie. Um, and then Trent and I have had a cool working relationship because you know, we were able to bounce things off of each other and talk through things and um, and go over the game plan together and um, talk about different rushers together and, and work post-practice on a couple of things. But um, the savviness and the and the and the um, the the smarts of, of, of where of where to play your situations that Trent brings um, on top of the technique stuff, the fire the um, preparation that Joe always brought um, is, has been a, has been a pretty cool blessing for me um, to be able to sit back and watch and, and take part in. And um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I don't know if anybody could ever say they played their counterpart was a hall of famer for two separate guys. It's, right. I mean, I get, I guess whoever played with Joe Thomas for as long as he did or for his rookie year, but I got, you know, when Joe Staley went down, I thought I was going to have to make a move to, left tackle or maybe or something and then one morning my phone goes off and our office coordinator tells me we just signed trent williams i was like holy shit <laughs> what are we, like, you guys you guys are treating me right here you know I get, I get i get to learn from some pretty cool guys and um i don't know when you I, I don't know if i've ever seen a situation where you go from one hall of famer to another before speaking of hall of famers my last question for you mike is about harry he stan and I'm one Hall of Famer of Hall of Famers. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Do you still um, regular contact with him? And if so, what what are those conversations like? Yeah, I talk to Coach all the time. Um, we all do. And um, he takes a lot of pride in what we are and who we are and, and the things that we're dealing with. And 
Um, you know, he's he's got a lot, a little bit more time on his hands these days. So I think he even goes down the rabbit hole of hearing hearing things that are said or whatever, and and um, you know, checks in with you every now and again. And um, I remember when <laughs> a couple weeks ago. I mean, he's texted me since checking in on injury and, and all that stuff and, and making sure I'm okay and all that, all, all, all that good stuff. But he got back into coaching on me when we were going to play Chicago and, um, you know, have, being there for two or three years or wherever he was with 52, uh, Khalil, with Khalil being there. As soon as the game was over against Indy, I, I got this whole template of here's what to focus on this week. Here's, what, <laughs> here's how you block 52. It's going to be a fight, you know, a fight of fight. You've, ne- you've never fought this hard before, right, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but he he's still the best, man. He it's always it, There's always football involved when I talk to him. Um, but there's also just checking in to see how you're doing. And we're hopefully hopefully all going to be able to meet up sometime in the offseason with, you know, all the Harry Heastand era vets of the NFL and, and, and O-line at, at some point. We've been trying to make it work for two years now, but this whole world pandemic has kind of yeah. <laughs> rusted us into the butt. So, right. <laughs> Mike, so Notre Dame will be playing out at Stanford um, with potentially a chance to still make it in the playoffs, depending how things play out across college football. I'm curious, um, you've played out at Stanford before. What is it like to play out there? Will there be any issues of sort of getting up for that game, if, even though maybe the crowd at Stanford might not be the, the rowdiest? I don't think there's any issues getting up for it, but it is it is quiet. It's definitely different. Um, <laughs> And thankfully, the 49ers are not that way um, because that would be a weird deal. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I told you this before we started, but my first time ever, you know, growing up on the East Coast, I didn't know anything other than Stanford being just a perennial powerhouse. Of, you know, when Harbaugh got there and, and Toby Gerhardt and Andrew Luck and all these guys that were – and then I was thrust into the rivalry that we had at Notre Dame thinking that we had, we had a top-10 matchup on Thanksgiving weekend, my – true freshman year and I traveled to the game and was thinking like, Oh man, this is going to be cool. It's a night game. Like crowd's going to be crazy, you know, college football at its finest. Right. (laughs) And you go there and it's, it's silent. It's not, you know, it's the Bay area. It's, it's, that's, there's a lot of other things going on at Stanford other than football. And um, so it's, it's, it's kind of different how they've been, how the success of their program has you know, for whatever reason, um, their stadium isn't the rowdiest place on earth, but the rivalry always is. Um, Stanford is a hard, well-coached football team that always brings it and any week can beat you. And when I was in college, they were a perennial powerhouse. They were Rose Bowl after Rose Bowl they were after Rose Bowl with NFL players out the wazoo. And um, so the game, you'll never have to have an issue worried worrying about getting up to play Stanford, especially because it's always the last game of your year. Um, but especially, if, you know, with the chance of them going 11 and one and getting to and sealing the deal, I don't think that getting up for the game will be an issue, but it's definitely different to play at Stanford. It's uh, it's it, it, and it's like there and um, a couple of my big 10 college t- or my teammates on the Niners that were from the big 10 always joked that the hardest place to play in the big 10 was Ryan field at Northwestern at noon yeah. on a, on a Saturday. So, um, it's a little bit of that vibe. It's a little bit of that. But Notre Dame travels well, so the stadium will be full with Irish fans at least. Um, but some of my favorite games of college, even though I, was, I only went one and four against Stanford, um, were against Stanford because it was always a 
mono a mono O line, great O line versus great D line, you know, and we, you know, got the better of them a couple of times. Well, all right, Mike, that's all we got for you. We really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us and uh, good luck with the recovery and heal up fast. All right. I appreciate it guys. Go Irish. Thanks. All right. Now it's time for place your bets. How much you want to make a bet? I can throw a football over the mountains. This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for Notre Dame Stanford. First one I have for us, Eric, is over under 275 rushing yards for Notre Dame. Well, the Cal Bears ran for 355 on Stanford in their rivalry game last weekend uh, in a 41-11 Cal victory, which was kind of stunning that the stats and the uh, uh, the score was that lopsided. Cal got over 600 yards in total yards. Notre Dame, you know, Stanford's average now is 241.7, giving up. I think it's going to be under the 275, but not by much. I think in the 250 range, I think some of that is just Notre Dame won't run enough plays. They won't run uh, super fast tempo. I think the other thing is they're going to want to throw the ball. They, they've they really found a rhythm in being balanced, and I don't think they're going to want to get away from that. So for me, I'm going slightly under. I am going to go over, I think, the the trend of the way Stanford's defense is playing will certainly indicates that that is a very realistic possibility. Um, and, I, and I also think that it, it could end up getting a bit one-sided. And um, even though in these – lopsided victories Notre Dame has allowed Tyler Buckner to throw some when he comes in at, towards the end of the game uh, I think uh, as we saw with Audrey Estime against Georgia Tech there's plenty of running power to to rely on there um, in the ends of games too so I think that that may end up pushing the the total over 275 rushing yards next one more rushing yards Kyron Williams himself or Stanford's entire offense well, Stanford's entire offense runs for about 90 yards a game. <laughs> um, I think Kyron's going to be up over 100 in this game, even though I I've noticed his use as a running back has gone down some. You know, they're saving some wear and tear on him. He's also in the slot a lot more than he was earlier in the season, right. and that's kind of limited his carries. But I think he'll outrush Stanford. You know, they were worse in the games that Tanner McKee was out. They got sacked more and they didn't run the ball as well. Yeah. Because teams knew that they couldn't throw it. Tanner <laughs> McKee's a good quarterback. Um, so I, I still think Kyron will outrush Stanford. Can you yeah. imagine us saying that? Like <laughs> I know ago? it's it's so wild. Like uh I, I I've actually asked. Uh, I asked Brian Kelly about it and I asked Josh Lug and Kyron Williams about it. Like this isn't like the Sanford team you'd normally think of, but I uh, like you, you'd like to like sort of use a, a, a dominant running performance against Stanford as like, okay, this is this worse. We mean business here. And it's like, it doesn't really mean that much because Stanford doesn't run the ball well on offense and then they don't stop the run uh, on defense either. So it's just a, it's a bizarre Stanford team. It's like the complete opposite of the Stanford teams that we are used to seeing um, when they were at their best. Um, and I'm not sure. 
how they get back to that. So I, I agree that I think Kyron Williams will rush for more yards than Stanford offense as, as sort of ridiculous as it sounds on the premise, but the stats would indeed seem to indicate that it wouldn't be that, that big of a, uh, or that surprising of an outcome if Kyron Williams does indeed do that. Next bet over under 71 and a half completion completion percentage for Jack Cohn. Cohn's been really on fire, especially against some of these, you know, defenses that have been vulnerable and his pass efficiency numbers come way up. I think he's certainly capable Stanford up until the cow game, they were respectable in pass defense. I mean, they were in the top 40. Uh, They took a big hit. Chase Garbers just carved them up. I'm just going to say under, I'm not sure why, I guess. Again, I think if there's something Stanford does better than average, it's hit play pass defense, but boy, not by much. Yeah. I'm going to go over just uh, Jack Cohn seems to be, given enough opportunities to make this, the safe throws and he's making them accurately. Um, the last three games, he's been at least 75% or better. Um, and he was 75% even against Virginia tech, which obviously that's a bit skewed because that wasn't a, really a full game for him. Um, but even against uh, USC, he was 71.4%, which is sort of where I came up with, with the line for this. The only game he was below that number in the last, uh, six games was 66.7% against North Carolina. Um, so I, I'm going to go over 71.5 completion percentage for Jack Cohn because I think he's just, he's been sharp. He knows where he wants to go with the football and he's been able to make those, uh, those throws when necessary. Next bet more sacks, Notre Dame starting defensive line or the rest of Notre Dame's defense. Well, I guess it depends who Mike Elston makes a deal with because, <laughs> um, you know, that's a much longer flight uh, coming from Stanford. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and and that was the deal in their last road game with uh, with Riley Mills coming from Virginia and uh, being able to sit in first class. They should make Mike Elston sit in a middle seat. Uh, I, to be clear, Kurt Heinrich said that that deal was available for anyone. It was anyone that got to hit that number, and Riley right, was right, the one to hit, right. Hit, so hit that's that. why my answer is ultimately <laughs> going to be the defensive line. So, the, so, so the linebackers and the safeties could have gotten that deal too. Is that what you're saying? Oh no, 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 no. Okay, yeah. It was any defensive it, line? It was any defensive lineman. It didn't. It yeah. wasn't necessarily. See, there's, there's, it wasn't necessarily a bet with Riley. It was like any of the defensive line. But this this bet for us is just the starters. So obviously Riley wouldn't be included in that. Right, but there there are airline tickets, there are <laughs> or airline seats, there are cookies on the line, and I think Isaiah Foskey going back to the Bay Area is going to have himself a day. Um, I, I think this is going to be he's got a chance to to climb the ladder a little bit more in Notre Dame single season, and he was up for the task against Georgia Tech. It was just his pressures opened up other people and he forced a couple fumbles. I mean, uh, um, Jordan Yates was running for his life from Foskey. He only got one sack, but boy, he was causing havoc. And I think he'll do that against Stanford. So defensive line for me on this one. All right. I'm going to go with the rest of Notre Dame's defense. I think they have sort of been better with their blitz packages and execution in them. And so, but you're saying starters, right? 
uh, I guess, well, no, I, I, I had, I had said the rest of Notre Dame's defense. So I guess that would give me the backups on the defensive line, but I, I can, I can do it. I think it's probably more fair to just do the starters. So let's, yeah, let's do. Okay. Well, because if, if Drew White starts ahead of Bauer, Bauer right. is more likely to get sacks. Right. Um, but, but I, and I'll is more likely to get sacks than Kaiser. For example. Right. 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 Any, or Foskey even, or not Foskey, uh, prior even is better, uh, yeah. has a better chance of getting sacks than Kaiser. Right. Um, so, but I, I just think that they've done enough different things with the, the other guys on the defense, um, to, to mix things, mix things up. Um, I, it also like, they haven't been starting DJ Brown. They start Ramon Henderson and Houston Griffith and Houston Griffith doesn't play as much, but he still has been getting the first rep first snap um, where I think DJ Brown's probably a better blitzer. Um, and even Ramon. Better Henderson. everything. <laughs> to be honest with you. Right. He is. Yeah. Houston Griffith's uh, uh, role in the defense continues to shrink, but I'll go with the rest of the defense and uh, take my chances there. Next question: Will Notre Dame or will Stanford convert more than thirty-three percent of his third downs? That's a funny stat because they—that's where they are with their third-down conversions. And Notre Dame's defense—that's where they are. Yeah, that was an easy line to set because they were both the same. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to say they won't get to that point, and the reason why is I think Notre Dame will be so good on first and second down. Stanford's going to be looking at a lot of third and longs. And so um, I don't think they'll even get to 33%. I, I do think Tanner McKee helps that percentage, but I, it won't be enough. They'll be under that. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement with you there. I, I think uh, Notre Dame, sort of including that pass rush package that I'm talking about, I think they, they've improved on that, and that makes third down so much more difficult uh, against this Notre Dame's defense, and I don't have a lot of confidence in the Stanford off, offense to overcome that. Lastly, what is your final score prediction for Notre Dame Stanford? <laughs> um, I'll tell you what's funny is I've already been asked for a score prediction this week from my mom on what <laughs> Georgia will do to Georgia Tech. Which I was stunned that she understood the question. And I wanted to put a negative number in Georgia Tech. I, Notre Dame beat them 55 to nothing. It's going to be like 80 to negative 10. Uh, when those two teams play. So uh, I'm a little bit more confident in that score than this one, but I'll say Notre Dame 45, Stanford 13. All right. I am taking Notre Dame 41, Stanford 20. I know we, did, we didn't end up looking like geniuses with our shared 38 to 17 prediction last week. Well, it was 38 <laughs> nothing at one point, so we, were, we just needed Notre Dame to call off the dogs, but the style points. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was an interesting one. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First one I have for us, Eric, is from at Clutch Sports ND. How excited for Myron Tagovailoa Tagovailoa Amosa were you when he ran back that scoop and score? Um, I thought it was a really cool moment. Um, and I thought it was really neat that he had a touchdown dance already in the back <laughs> pocket. Um, you know, <laughs> the guy has, and it seems like every kid from Hawaii does this, they exceed 
what the expectations are coming in the door. Even Manti Teo, for a guy that was a top 10 recruit, ends up being the most decorated Notre Dame player ever in terms of those postseason awards and, and finishing second in the Heisman. Um, and, and Myron certainly done that. And, and just having talked to Myron's mom before and how tight that family is and losing his dad in August, I, I can't imagine... I can't imagine the emotion that was going through, you know, on senior day, thinking about his father and stuff. It was just, you know, we didn't get a chance to talk to Myron since then. And I'm not sure that he can do that without getting super emotional, but man, um, it was a beautiful moment for him. Yeah. There was definitely lots of smiles and laughter in the press box uh, when that was happening. Uh, I thought, I thought he for sure would have to pitch it <laughs> rather than be able to keep, keep it himself. And uh, I, I just couldn't believe when I watched the replay that he, he had the football, saw the guy chasing him, switched football, switched the ball from his left hand to his right hand so he could stiff arm with his left hand. And then I, I mentioned that to Brian Kelly after the game. He said, yeah, I think Coach Elston was uh, was teaching that too much in practice. Yeah. It was just – it was incredible that he was able to – not only attempt to do that, but then keep his balance when the, when the guy hit it at his legs. Um, so that, that was really cool. Um, and, and definitely probably one of the more memorable moments from this football season. Next question is from Michael Kelly at Michael bunch of numbers. Why do you think the defense seems to be better without Kyle Hamilton? Well, they weren't in the North Carolina game, but since the North Carolina game, there's been incredible improvement. You know, there's a few factors you do have to factor in that they are not playing North Carolina each right. week, uh, which is a really difficult offense, both in terms of its potency and its balance that you're always in a pass run dilemma with them. But, you know, having said that, you know, Virginia without their starting quarterback still had all those really good receivers. Um, but, but the two factors I want to put an accent on is one I think the team stopped looking over its shoulder and saying, when's Kyle going to be back? If we can just hold on until Kyle comes back. I think the North Carolina game showed them that they needed to improve without Kyle. And, um, you know, I think that pass rush has really up. I mean, Notre Dame is fourth in the country in sacks right now. They've really taken their pass rush up a notch. And, and the tackling's better. You know, I talked to Bo Bauer last night about, you know, what happened after the North Carolina game, and they just absolutely had to get locked in on being better tacklers, and it's paid off. So those would be my factors. Yeah, I, I know after the Navy game, there were lots of questions of like, okay, how does – isn't it going to be really difficult to go from the Navy to, to play in Virginia because it's completely different offenses? And the guys that I spoke to were like, well – Yes, that is true, but like Navy gave us a chance to make sure that we were focusing on our fundamentals, which is something we really needed to do coming off of that North Carolina game and tackling being key among them. Um, so I, I think that they've certainly refocused and improved in those areas. But, yeah, I think the opponents have, have a great deal to do with this. Um, Navy's not a, as good at the triple option as it usually is. Um, Virginia didn't stand a chance with his backup quarterback in there, who was a true freshman. Um, I think the Georgia Tech performance was probably the best of the three because there is some good talent on that team. Uh, I think since the North Carolina game, Notre Dame has sort of expanded its safety p 
position more and gotten Ramon Henderson involved, gotten Xavier Watts involved a little bit more. And I think those guys are helping the defense and DJ Brown is playing better than he had earlier in the season. Um, So I I think there is certainly the caveat that the defense or the offenses that they're playing against haven't been very good. Um, But this defense is still making strides um, despite that, because you still got to go out there and play. Um, And and I I do think that Marcus Freeman has sort of adjusted his defense accordingly with Kyle Hamilton out and gotten a better sense of what this defense can look like and should look like without him out there. Um, And I think some of those pressure packages, I think are part of that as well. So um, it's, it's certainly not a better defense without Kyle Hamilton. They would be glad to have him back. And uh, the, may need him to come back depending on uh, what their bull slash playoff outlook looks like. Next question is from at Andy Jeff zero six, as good as the offense has looked, do you think the progression has been slightly overinflated due to the poor defenses they have seen? It seems like very little has been made about how bad these defenses are that Notre Dame has been playing this second half. Um, you know, I think I pointed that out in some of the analysis that I've done going into the games. Not sure that I pointed out in the game column, um, but that's not your question. Your question <laughs> is, um, do you think it's overinflated? A little bit, but I also think you have to look at um, the execution and what that looks like and also how much above Notre Dame is going against those defenses in terms of what what they're able to do to those so yeah I think they're poor defenses and we're going to see another one Saturday night but I think Notre Dame deserves credit for taking advantage of that and being able to make the improvement I still think if Notre Dame was playing you know Purdue and some of those defenses uh maybe not Wisconsin but you know I think they'd be better against Wisconsin than offensively than they were in the first game so, um, you know, I think the, the improvement is universal, but yes, some of the numbers have, are a little bit better because of the defenses they're facing. Yeah. Uh, the, these kinds of questions, I always like wonder like, okay, are, are, are you, do you mean are, are, are Eric and I doing the overinflating or are you saying other people are doing the overinflating? And so that's, because I feel like we've, I mean, like you said, I mean, especially on this podcast, every every week when we go into the prop bets, I mean, we do talk about how bad these opposing defenses are, and that's why the the prop bets are set the way they are, and, and based on our predictions that that follow along with that. So, I think um, anyone that's watching this Notre Dame team realizes the quality of of um, defenses that Notre Dame has been playing isn't good. Um, but I do think the offense has improved. The running game is more dynamic. The offensive line is blocking better. Um, and it's not just because they're stronger and, and better than the guys that they're going against. It's because that they're working together better. Um, and, and the execution that you talked about um, is there. And I think Tommy Reese has become a little bit more creative and, is, and was forced to once Avery Davis was was um, taken out of the lineup because of injury. So I'm not certainly not going to say – uh, that Notre Dame is one of the best offenses in college football. Um, and uh, I think uh, hopefully we are uh, qualifying all these um, in- improvements and uh, well, successes yeah, I mean, correctly. You look at Georgia Tech's defense. I mean, North Carolina didn't get 55. They were in the 20s against them. And 
you know, Van Dyke from uh, Miami is having himself a year, and and I think Miami scored 31. So, I mean, not a lot of people are putting 55 up on, on a Power 5 team like Georgia Tech. Granted, 14 of those came from the defense, but. <laughs> right. Um, that, well, they just took the opportunities away from the offense. If Mar- Myron had gotten tackled at the five, they would have gotten punched to them. <laughs> right, sure, sure. Um, next question is from Tan Win at Tan NG, bunch of numbers. Should we be in the top four? You know what? The stunning part of this podcast right now was that you pronounced that last name correctly. <laughs> um, so, well, I credit uh, I credit Datwin, the former uh, – College yeah. ball player for allowing me to learn that as a child. <laughs> okay. I had a um, feature on an Adams soccer player years ago, South Bend Adams, and his last name was Nguyen, a Vietnamese name. But anyways, should we be in the top four? Tyler and I definitely not. Notre Dame, not yet. Um, oh, wait a minute. You saying this isn't a top four podcast? <laughs> well, I mean, in the top four in the playoff field, I think – it's a top four podcast. It's just not, we're not, um, we're not being evaluated as a college football playoff team. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But I I agree with you. I don't think that Notre Dame should be in the top four. Um, I'd put Notre Dame behind Georgia, Ohio state, Alabama, Cincinnati, and maybe Michigan right now. I I think, I think sort of, I have them ahead of Michigan, but the difference maker there debatable yeah it's gonna fit it's gonna work itself out saturday right if kyle hamilton were if i knew kyle hamilton were playing then maybe i would feel more comfortable putting notre dame ahead of michigan Um, but like you said yeah i I think michigan's going to drop out of there after this weekend um now should notre dame be there in the end i'm not i'm not sure this is something i haven't i don't feel great about notre dame's chances still um I, I wouldn't put Notre Dame obviously ahead of Georgia, even with one loss. Um, I don't think they would go ahead of a one loss Alabama um, or Ohio State or Michigan. Either of those what about a two loss Alabama? It's a, I, that depends. I, I could be convinced that Notre Dame could go ahead of a two loss Alabama. Um, I don't know that I would feel that it would be some sort of great injustice if a two loss Alabama was ahead of Notre Dame. Um, I don't think that Notre Dame should go ahead of an undefeated Cincinnati, certainly. Um, and I'm not totally sold that Notre Dame would deserve to be ahead of a one loss Oklahoma state either. Um, so there still are a number of obstacles there for Notre Dame to get into the top four. Um, so that's just sort of looking ahead. I don't know if that was necessarily what the intent of the question was, but, um, that was something that I, I think is interesting and, uh, certainly curious to see how it plays out these next couple of weeks. Next question is from Irish fan one zero two predict where you think Notre Dame will be in the postseason. Major bowl game or playoffs? Well, Tyler kind of took us through that a little bit. I mean, there's games that that are happening this weekend that are going to end the following weekend that are going to affect that. I want to say something about Oklahoma State. I think they're really good, and I had them ranked ahead of the Michigan schools, um, but behind Notre Dame before Michigan State lost by almost 50 to Ohio <laughs> State. Yeah. Um, but, but you look at Oklahoma State's season, and it's kind of similar. You know, they opened with a seven-point win over Missouri State. They beat Tulsa by five, Boise by one, you know, and then they kind of hit their stride 
late and just destroyed TCU, shut out Texas Tech. Um, you know, they played some of their better games early. They beat Baylor by 10, or I mean, in the middle of the season. Um, but, you know, the, their quarterback play is not elite. So it's going to be really interesting what they do in Bedlam on Saturday with Oklahoma and what they do in the Big 12 championship game, which they've clinched a spot. If they beat um, Oklahoma, they play Baylor. If they most likely Baylor, if they lose, then they play Oklahoma again. Um, I'm I think that not enough things are going to happen for Notre Dame to get into the top four. I think it's going to be really interesting with the two loss Alabama. The thing about Alabama is everybody knows how good they should be, right. but at some point, what happens on the field has to matter. And they've had a lot of close calls lately with not really good teams. Um, so, so I'm really curious to see how they'll match up with Georgia. I think Notre Dame ends up, I think Cincinnati makes it. And that puts yeah. Notre Dame into the Fiesta Bowl rather than the Peach. So I think they'll play in the Fiesta Bowl against a team like Ole Miss. All right. Yeah, I, I – I'm feeling better about Cincinnati getting in the playoff now too. So that's why I will predict Notre Dame going to the Fiesta Bowl. Um, and uh, I would like to see that against either Michigan or Michigan State. I think that would be fun to see um, uh, the Big Ten matchup there potentially. Um, so uh, I think there are lots of things that could happen to change that. Um, it's just, it to me, like I don't, if Notre Dame gets in the playoff, it's because there's going to be a lack of teams that deserve to be in the playoff rather than Notre Dame deserving to be the playoff. I think in my, in my opinion, I just not, I, I don't know that the Notre Dame, this Notre Dame team has done enough things to deserve to get there, but there, there aren't that many teams that have done enough to deserve to get there either. So that's, that's not how this works. It's not like, well, we'll take the, the only the teams that deserve to be here, but there's gotta be four teams and Notre Dame just might be one of those top four teams remaining. Next question is from Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB. Would Notre Dame be favored versus any of the other one-loss teams currently vying for that fourth college football playoff spot? I know Notre Dame has been ascending post-bye week, but it's hard to get a clear picture when considering how bad their opponents have been. Not their fault, by the way. Right. Well, I, I think they're building their resume with Vegas a little bit, too. I think Notre Dame is – eight and three against the spread this year. Um, okay, so let's look at those one-loss teams. We won't look at the two-loss teams. Alabama, big underdog. Ohio State, big underdog. Michigan, I think that would be a pretty close line. I think Michigan would maybe be favored by a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Oklahoma schools, I think Notre Dame would be favored over Oklahoma State and maybe Oklahoma as well. That, that would be my take. Yeah, I had sort of the we're sort of simpatico there. I had I had they certainly wouldn't be favored against Ohio State or Alabama, uh, maybe against Michigan, and then probably against Oklahoma State. And Oklahoma was sort of how I how I gauge things. Next question is from at Bobby Bancroft. Let's say you can only pick just one, which would be more important in continuing the ten plus win seasons, at least another season of Marcus Freeman, or somehow some way getting into the college football playoff this season. Um, I think this is a great question and I'm going with another season of Marcus Freeman. 
And the reason I say that is because, you know, I, I think if they promoted somebody internally, they probably could run the same defense next year. But I think continuity would be important after changing schemes this year. Um, and I also think recruiting would take a hit. Um, there's some really good players committed in the 2023 class already on defense. There's the best linebacker class in decades, according to analyst Tom Lemming in the 2022 class. I just think that that's, that's uh, an important piece. I think making the playoff is, is big in recruiting too, but I think Marcus Freeman not taking a head coaching job is important. Yeah, to, to me, like I agree that Freeman is the bigger indicator here. Um, partially because like getting to 10 wins next season specifically isn't going to be easy. Um, you're playing Ohio state and Clemson. Um, so that's two potential losses easily. Um, and so then you gotta, you gotta make sure you win the rest of your games. And so I don't think getting to the playoff this year would guarantee you any bet more that you would be able to win those other 10 games or, or beat one of those Oklahoma or beat Ohio state or Clemson. Um, next season so I, I think the the coaching on the field which would include and require Marcus Freeman would be a play a bigger role I think the college football playoff this season would have more of an impact in on 2023 than 2022 potentially um, I think it certainly could help Notre Dame here down the stretch before early, the early signing period um, and that's that's one of the things you have to remember that um, just getting to and that some people like sort of like scoff at like, why would we want to get in the playoff to get beat down by Georgia? It's like, well, if you get in the playoff, you're not going to get beat down by Georgia until after the early signing period. So you could convince a few guys here before, before the, before the signing period to get into the class. And obviously the, I think the recruiting is always much more long lasting than that. And I think just getting into the playoffs does still matter because you can pitch to the kids. Hey, we can get to the playoff on a consistent basis. We've, we've shown that but we need you to help us get farther into the playoff. Um, and so I think that's why you'd always want to be in the playoff rather than end this stupid uh, New Year's Six Bull streak that Notre Dame has going on. So um, I think uh, – but I do think um, that Marcus Freeman is is the, the better chance of continuing the 10-plus win seasons. Next question is from at Steve Goforth5. If Marcus Freeman left for a head coaching job, would Mike Elston – or Mike Mickens be promoted to defensive coordinator? If Tommy Reese left, are there any internal candidates that would be promoted to offensive coordinator? Um, I think Mike Elston would certainly be in that mix, and maybe this would be the time that it finally was his time. I think it depends on, you know, if they can find somebody similar to Marcus Freeman schematically, and if they are as dynamic of a recruiter as Marcus Freeman. I mean, the the win-win in Mike Elston not getting the defensive coordinator job this year was having Freeman and Elston together. So it's not a knock on Mike Elston because um, I think he is uh, – he would have been my um, nominee for Broyles Award and right. would be that a lot of years for Notre Dame. Uh, is – if Tommy left, are there any internal candidates that would be promoted to offensive coordinator? I think Lance Taylor would get an interview, um, and I think he would be under consideration. But, again, I think 
Uh, Brian would look outside to see, again, if there was a dynamic recruiter, a dynamic play caller. Because you're talking about these are Brian Kelly's prime years. Those, those would be incredibly big hires because if Notre Dame is going to make a run at a national championship under Brian Kelly before he retires, these are the coordinators that would be, um, you know, if, if there were, were going to be vacancies, these would be the coordinators that would get you there or not get you there. So big, big hires. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I can certainly see the the value in promoting Mike Elston. I, I would have no problem with that. I would be I would be on board with that. But Kelly has just passed on him too many times for me to be convinced that that would be something that would happen. Not 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 necessarily that I don't think it should happen. If this were the scenario that would uh, that played out, that if Marcus Freeman left this offseason, um, but I just. I, I would need to, for it to, I'd have to see it to believe it. Um, I don't have any indication that uh, Mike Mickens is ready for that as a defensive coordinator. So I don't think that would happen. Um, and then I agree with you on the offensive side. I think Lance Taylor could be a candidate there, but I'm not sure if that would happen. I, I don't feel confident that that would be where, where they would turn. And like you said, these are, these would be incredibly important hires um, because uh these are going to be some of Brian Kelly's last hires as coordinators at some point here. Next question is from at Drew Brennan 77. If I were to ask you after the Virginia tech game, would you consider this a rebuilding or a reloading year for the Irish? I think your answer would have been rebuilding. Now that we are where we are after 11 games, how has your answer changed to this being a reloading year? Well, my answer didn't change. I, I think I've been pretty consistent saying this is a reloading year. Um, I picked Notre Dame at the beginning of the season to go 10 and two with a chance to have a higher ceiling. So I think if I were picking a rebuilding year, that, that wouldn't have been my prediction. Um, now it's been wobbly at times. Hmm. Um, there was a lot of personnel turnover. I think uh, according to Phil Steele's magazine, Notre Dame had was one of the bottom five in terms of experience, starting experience returning in the country. Um, but I think, what's allowed Notre Dame to make it a reloading year and why I predicted that is because of the culture change after the 2016 season. I think there were some parallels to the 2016 season, potentially with this group. And because of what happened in 2017, and you heard Mike McGlinchey talking about that earlier, why those changes were permanent. And it wasn't just a, a turnaround year. It was a program changing year. I think that's why we've, seen um a reloading year in 2021 yeah there there were a few of those alarmists before the season like hey this could be another 2016 season uh, and certainly that hasn't hasn't been the case i i don't i don't think of rebuilding that often when i describe college football teams I, I to me it's more of a professional team description with an understanding that hey we're going to be bad but we're okay about that because this is about building for the future I don't know that I would have ever described this Notre Dame season as that. And I don't think college football coaches think that way because there's no advantage advantage to being bad um, in college football. Um, I always consider this more of a, a bridge season, which is a bit of a shame because that feels wrong for a team that's likely going to lose Kyle Hamilton and Kyron, Kyron Williams in the offseason. But um, I, I just feel like this, was, this team is much more in line with reloading because – 
you don't think a team that has those guys on it, you have guys like Michael Mayer and Isaiah Foskey on it, um, would be underperforming to the level that you would call it a, a rebuilding season. Um, I I probably started to question that after the, the first few games of the season, but uh, this team has figured things out and uh, clearly um, shows that it's better than the opponent when it is better than the opponent on Saturdays, and that wasn't necessarily always the case uh, when the season started. So I think it's more of a reloading year. um, And I just, I just don't know. It would have to get pretty bad for to be considered a rebuild. Like obviously uh, the four and eight season, that was, that wasn't a reloading, (laughs) reloading year for Notre Dame. Uh, But uh, I think, uh, I think that, like you said, this, this program is in a place that it, it can have turnover and, and, still have success um, even if it's lost a lot of talent from the previous season. Next question is from Chris Scheiber at Scheib 43. Does the COVID year count against the scholarship limit or do schools get to go over the 85 scholarships as long as the surplus is going to those who are using their extra COVID year? Would this allow Notre Dame to keep Lug, Patterson, et cetera, and not stop building for the future as well? So, this year, 2021, you could go over 85 scholarships and what allowed you to go over 85 were the COVID exemption guys that you used this year. So it was Kurt Heinisch and Jonathan Dore were the only ones on Notre Dame's team. Toledo had like 20 of those guys. I mean, it was incredible. And there are a lot of teams that that did that. Jack Cohn counted against the 85 uh, because he was a transfer, so you couldn't. And same with Kane, same with Kane Madden. Yeah, same with Kane Madden. So they they counted against the eighty five. So next year in the twenty twenty two roster, everybody goes back to eighty five. So Notre Dame's not going to have that much of a adjustment to make. Uh, so when you talk about Lug and Patterson counting against the eighty five, yes, they and everybody else would, whether they're COVID exemptions or not. Now, Patterson right. doesn't need to have a COVID exemption. He has a red shirt year that he, you know, is eligible to come back for. So, uh, but in any case, I think, you know, Brian Kelly would be doing cartwheels if, if Patterson came back. And, and I think it would be interesting. The lug question is interesting because there are two really good young tackles and some One's behind them, uh, but I, I think, you know, Lug may be a guy that would plug in at guard or center, you know, just depending on what Patterson does. So Yeah, we, we, talked, we talked to Josh Lug a little bit about that on Monday night of what, what he's thinking, and it's certainly something he's considering in terms of coming back and using the COVID exemption. Um, and I'm not sure how long he had been considering that. I think over the past few weeks, I think it's been something that's become a little bit maybe more real for him. I don't know that he has made he, – he seemed to indicate that he hasn't even made a decision. He's still trying to figure out what he wants to do. Um, we followed up and said, hey, I, I mean, we know that Joe Alt's pretty good tackle and Blake Fisher seemed to be pretty good as well. Uh, who ends up playing – who ends up playing tackle between you and Blake Fisher? And Josh joked with us and said they'd play rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> um, uh, but he said, no, he said, I'd be willing to play. He's like, I think it's, I think it's been clear throughout my time here at Notre Dame that I'm willing to play wherever they need me. So I, I don't think he would be opposed to playing guard if that was something that um, made sense for Notre Dame. Um, so I, I'm not, 
it's not clear to me exactly if Notre Dame is like, okay, Josh, we want you back. I'm not sure like where, how, if, if it's more fluid than that. Um, I think that there still is going to certainly be a lot of scholarship juggling this off season. Um, and I, I'm, I'm curious to see how that plays out on the offensive line. And I did ask him, I said, well, have you been t- talking about talking to Jared Patterson about what you guys want to do? And he said, yes, we certainly have been <laughs> having discussions about it. He's, I think their lockers are right next to each other in the locker room. So um, it'll be interesting to see. I think, I think Notre Dame's offensive line is going to be successful next year, regardless if Patterson and Lug come back. But I think uh, certainly it would you would seem to think that they would ha- have a chance to be even better if those guys did come back. Next question is from at Corey Radio. Is there any validity to the rumors that C.J. Williams may jump ship from the current recruiting class? For those who don't know who C.J. Williams is, he's one of the top recruits in Notre Dame's uh, class in the 2022 class that can sign national letters of intent. Uh, December 15th through the 17th. So we're less than a month away from that. He's a wide receiver from Los Angeles. And I haven't talked to CJ personally, but I have seen reports and I believe those reports to be true that CJ does have some curiosity in who the new USC coach will be. Um, And I think if it's somebody that CJ Williams likes he will consider going to USC instead of Notre Dame. His high school has a history of sending guys to USC. And, you know, maybe he's getting a little bit of cold feet about the distance and the weather right now. I think the good news is Brian Kelly is staying out on the West Coast after the Stanford game, or he's staying away from South Bend, I should say. He's going to start on the West Coast and go visit with, um, the recruits that are in the 2022 class, including C.J. Williams. So he'll have a good chance to have a talk to allay any misgivings that C.J. might have or any cold feet that he might have uh, during that time. So we'll just have to see how that plays out. But the rumors are real, so buckle up. Yeah, I, I'm not going to pretend that I have a ton of insight on this yet. I, I, he did a recent interview with On3, I believe, that raised some eyebrows. Um, so it certainly sounds like Notre Dame has some work to do there. Um, I think, <laughs> I don't know what Brian Kelly's itinerary is exactly, but I think that should probably be his very first trip <laughs> after the Stanford game is to see what's up with CJ Williams. Um, there was a reason I, I, well, before he committed, we were, we were asked like, who, who's the most important target for Notre Dame in this class. And I, I said, CJ Williams, um, because I thought that would be the most impressive victory recruiting victory for Notre Dame. He's a great player at a position of need at a school that leans USC over Notre Dame routinely. Um, So there was always going to be a chance that he would reconsider USC and certainly with a coaching change um, may have a invigorated interest in the Trojans, depending on how that program shapes out. I mean, it seems kind of crazy for Notre Dame fans because they see, well, look at what's been going on at USC and look at what's been going on at Notre Dame, but that's not how it always works. Uh, so there's a possibility that they, Notre Dame does lose him, but I think it would be pretty disastrous if it did happen. And uh, Notre Dame could be left in a really bad spot with wide receiver recruiting when they really need a good class here. Um, even though that the fre- the current freshman class is is good, but the depth that receiver is going to start thinning very considerably, and it already did this season due to injuries. And I should mention that high school is Santa Ana Modern Day. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> 
Next question is from Brett Kovach. If Kelly had been fired after the 2016 season, do you think they would be stuck in the same hiring firing cycle that Florida State, Florida, and Texas are in now? I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I think a lot of it would have depended on who they got as the replacement to Brian Kelly. Um, So, and I think Notre Dame probably would have stuck with whoever they picked for five years. Um, The only coach that they didn't do that with was Tyrone Willingham. Um, And he had three years and, and then they showed him the door. So, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm ready to say that, but certainly Kelly's brought a lot of stability. If maybe Kelly had been fired earlier in his time, uh, let's say after the 2011 season for some reason, after the second year, then I think maybe you, you would get that cycle of instability. But I don't necessarily think that would have been the case if he had left after two, 2016. It really just would depend on who they did hire. Yeah, I, I mean, that's why I think it is. It's possible. Um, I don't know, like in terms of the how many times the coaching job would have turned over between then and now. Um, but that was always part of my argument for keeping Brian Kelly, that who are you replacing him with that you're confident can do better? Um, I know sort of like you mentioned, they, they haven't they didn't fire guys within three or four years on a routine basis, but. Notre Dame was in a pretty nasty recruit uh, coaching cycle since Lou Holtz. They just could not get it figured out. Um, and I think uh, there was a very good chance that they could have been stuck in that similar situation um, if Brian Kelly was fired after the 2016 season. Now, obviously it could have been, you could have hired someone that would have been really good. I don't know how that would have worked out or who, who that looked for. I, I don't remember off the top of my head who like were the hot names in coaching around that time. Um but I don't. Uh, I think I think the odds are just as just as, and if not higher, that the the the, the replacement wouldn't have been better than Brian Kelly. Uh, next question is from at Mark Gray. I would love to know if you and Eric keep track of the prop bets. If so, who is winning this year? I don't even remember the prop bets on Saturday. <laughs> I have to ask Tyler. So I I think. I think it seems like when Tyler's leading, we hear a little bit more about what the ledger looks like. And when he's not, uh, he doesn't bring it up. But that could just be me being uh, me. Um, so, Tyler, I'm sure you have some sense of what this is, what's happening here. Yeah, I, I used to keep track of them and then I got behind and never caught up. Um, we used to publish something called Pot of Gold Nuggets, which uh, forced me to type up the answers, um, which made it easier to go back and track, but we stopped doing that and I failed to keep up with it. So, um, there has, I mean, some people will inquire. There hasn't always been a huge outcry of like, Hey, you guys need to make sure you're keeping track of this. I don't know if the segment would be more interesting or entertaining <laughs> if we did that. Uh, if, if you feel strongly about that, please let me know. I will and if put- you'd like to volunteer to keep track, let us know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are more than welcome to, to let us know how we're doing. Um, I, I, I will make a, a pledge to, in the month of December, to calculate this season's results. It, it, it's just a matter of taking the time to do it. And once uh, the season gets over with, I can I can try to find some time to do that. I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to keep up with it in the future. It's just a matter of setting aside the time to do that. And I think it would be kind of cool to – to have some way to have the listeners compete with us and, and keep track of their standings as well. I think that would be kind of neat, but um, I, uh, 
we'll put that on the to-do list for the future. Next question, and and I guess uh, my apologies if you're if you're heartbroken and you want to know, but please, if if you are really invested in how we're doing, let us know, and uh, we will make more of a conscious effort to do that. Next question is from at Joe Hughes, and our last question at Joe Hughes seventy twelve. What's your take on Christmas music prior to Thanksgiving, and what is your favorite Christmas song? I love Christmas music. Um, <laughs> I'm just laughing uh, because this isn't on my list, but um, years ago when I was a newlywed, I was at my parents-in-law's church and we're singing away in the manger. And, you know, not a lot of people know the verses really well, but they know the, Oh, come let us adore him part. So, um, you know, I'm kind of mumbling through the verses and we get to the part that I know and I just belt it out and the whole church kind of looked at me like I was trying to take over a solo and, you know, I'm not a solo voice. So anyways, okay, so let's get to my favorites. That's not among them because I, of that moment. So of kind of the traditional ones, I like, my favorite would be What Child Is This? Green Sleeves. Um I also kind of like, do you hear what I hear? Oh, holy night. And if you want something a little bit more up tempo, Jingle Bell Rock. As far as the um, more contemporary, um, I like Please Come Home for Christmas from the Eagles. And All I Want for Christmas is You from Mariah Carey. If I had to go with just one, I would go with What Child Is This, a traditional one. All right. Yeah, to me, it's tough. First of all, Christmas music prior to Thanksgiving, I am not in favor of. I, I love Thanksgiving, um, so I don't want the two holidays to encroach on each other. Um, so I want Thanksgiving to have its proper due. Um, not that I'm rolling around listening to Thanksgiving music, but I think Christmas has to wait its turn until after Thanksgiving, at least in my on my uh, music rotation. Um, my favorite song would be Santa Claus is coming to town by Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I'm not even that into Bruce Springsteen, which is sort of a sports writer cliche. Um, but that song was always sort of part of the rotation when we were putting up the Christmas tree as a kid. And it was a song that I really liked um, and still listen to re regularly during Christmas season. Uh, but I, it's tough because I, for me, like Christmas music, isn't so much one song as it is a bunch of songs. I think everyone probably has playlists and a number of songs that they go back to. Um, and, and I think, the list is very long of songs that I feel like need to be on a Christmas playlist. So yeah, I could go on and on jingle bell rock, rock around the Christmas tree. Um, all I want for Christmas is you by Mariah Carey. That's a good one. Um, so we're not quite there yet. We're a few days away from uh, opening up that, uh, that Christmas playlist for me personally. But I, I try not to judge too many people for doing that. Uh, if they, if they do listen to it, but it's not something that uh, I'm into. I was given, I had a buddy in town, a few buddies in town this past weekend. And one of them said that his Christmas tree has been up for like three weeks now. And I was giving him a hard time about that. Cause I think that's kind of silly. I want to throw in one for Hanukkah. I like the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song. <laughs> and Hanukkah's coming up right after Thanksgiving. It's early this year. Yep. All right. That's it for today's episode of pot of gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. We'll be back next week with a Stanford review and our first postseason preview. 
Until then, stick with NDInsider.com for all your Notre Dame football pregame and postgame coverage needs. Mm-hmm.